Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to begin at verse 30. Now, this is our fourth study through this impressive chapter, Hebrews chapter 11. In Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of the Hebrews is basically trying to answer a question. The question was raised by something that he said at the end of chapter 10. At the end of Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of the Hebrews said, quoting one of the Old Testament prophets, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he highlighted the phrase that the just shall live by faith. And it's very reasonable to ask, what does that even mean? What does it even mean for you or I to live a life by faith? And the writer of the Hebrews says, I'm going to show you what it means to live by faith because I'm going to walk you through the history of the Old Testament and I'm going to highlight men and women of faith that we can learn something from their lives. And so we've seen it in our three previous studies, how we've talked about Abel and how we've talked about Noah and we've talked about Enoch and we've talked about Abraham and we talked about Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and then Moses last week in a big way. Now we get to the period of Old Testament history that is following the time of Moses and the conclusion of this chapter, which I think ends in a very moving and powerful way. So let's take a look at this, starting now at verse 30. We read, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. Now, I find this verse sort of fascinating in Hebrews chapter 11. Because virtually throughout the whole chapter, he's been pointing to a specific man or woman of faith. This person, that person, and highlighting the faith that they had. I want you to notice, in verse 30, there's no mention of a specific person. Rather, he has in mind the faith of the people of God as a whole. And what did the people of God as a whole do as a demonstration of their faith? When they came into the promised land, when they came into Canaan after their long exodus out of uh, Egypt, they came into Canaan and the first place they went was the city of Jericho. Now, you may or may not remember this from previous Bible teachings you've heard, but I'll just tell you very quickly. Jericho was the mightiest and most heavily fortified city of all the Canaanites. What a place to start your conquest of Canaan. Wouldn't you think you'd sort of beat up on some smaller cities first? But God said, no, I want you to go first to, so to speak, the toughest nut to crack. And I want that to crack open under my power. And it wasn't going to be done through a brilliant military assault. It wasn't going to be done through mighty armies crashing themselves upon the impenetrable walls of Jericho. No, it was going to happen by faith, by faith, actually, in something that was relatively foolish. I don't know much about armies and militaries. I'm embarrassed to say pretty much only what I know from the movies. But at least that much can tell me that it's a foolish military strategy to just sort of march around a city once a day for seven days and then on the seventh day seven times and then blow a bunch of trumpets. That that's not brilliant military strategy. They had to have faith in God, and they did. And God did something totally unexpected, totally miraculous, by causing the walls of the city of Jericho to fall down and crash down in a dramatic way. And then his people then conquered the city. But they did it, notice, by faith. Not by their own wisdom, not by smarts, not even by their own power or ability, but they did it by faith. Now, as part of that conquering of Jericho, look at verse 31. He says this, by faith, 
the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Now, when they conquered the city of Jericho, there was one person in there who was a person of faith who had been contacted before the city walls ever fell. And her name was Rahab. And what do you know about Rahab from verse 31? She was a harlot. Now, it's kind of interesting because in the Old Testament, the word that they use to describe her in the book of Joshua, it can mean in other contexts, someone who's like a innkeeper or a hostess. And some people have thought, well, no, she couldn't have actually been a harlot. I mean, how disgraceful would it be for a harlot to be in the lineage of Jesus Christ? Because actually she's in the lineage of Jesus Christ. How scandalous it would be for a harlot to be lifted up as an example of faith. No, no, no. She must have been an innkeeper or a hostess. I love the writer of the Hebrews because the word that he uses here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31 is unambiguous. She was a harlot, a prostitute, a woman of the evening. You can allow the look up your thesaurus for more words. This is what she was. Now, this woman of a scandalous past, nevertheless, she is exalted as an example of faith. Why? I tell you, when I think about it, her faith was absolutely remarkable. She was a traitor to the gods of Canaan. And she identified with Yahweh, the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because she was a traitor to the gods of Canaan and to the government of Jericho, which supported those gods, and she was faithful to Yahweh, she is listed as a person of faith. You know, listen, Rahab's very problematic. She's problematic because of her past. She's problematic because of the lies she told and concealing the spies. She's problematic. But listen, the thing that makes her glorious It's like I said before, I don't know if you've ever thought about her in these terms. She was a traitor. She would not remain loyal to the wicked and depraved gods of the Canaanites. Instead, as soon as she learned about Yahweh, the covenant God of the Israelite people, she said, that's who I'm going to be loyal to. And I'm going to be a traitor to this world. People, I don't want to exaggerate and act as if every aspect of the culture around us is sick and depraved. But we got to admit, there's a lot of sickness and depravity depravity in the culture around us. And there needs to rise up something holy and powerful within the people of God that they'll simply say, I'm going to be a traitor to this world and I'm going to be faithful to Jesus Christ. That's what Rahab was. And in that, she showed faith. I read a sermon this week by Charles Spurgeon where he spoke about Rahab and he made six points about the faith of Rahab. Check it out. He said that she had saving faith, singular faith, stable faith, self-denying faith, sympathizing faith and sanctifying faith. And I thought, man, with that kind of alliteration, Pastor Nate could have made up that message right there. But it's true when you think about the amazing focus and power of faith that Rahab had simply to say, I'm going to turn my back. I'm going to become a traitor to these Canaanite gods and the government of Jericho that supports them. 
And I'm going to express my allegiance for the true and living God. I like what it says in Joshua chapter 2, verse 11, that when the Hebrew spies came to Rahab, this is what she said. She declared, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. That's the God of Israel. And I'm going to express my allegiance to him. Ladies and gentlemen, that is faith. Now, in verse 32, the writer of the Hebrews is going to describe more heroes of faith. Ready for this? Verse 32. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and also of David and Samuel and the prophets. I sympathize with the writer of the Hebrews here. He's almost in a little bit of despair. Time would fail me to tell you all about these guys. And I feel the same way as a preacher. You know, as a preacher, you're kind of confronted with the dilemma when you come to a verse like verse 32. Could we not have a wonderful message on faith in the life of each and every one of those people? I mean, it's amazing when you think about how God moved in the lives of every one of them. But you know what? Instead of doing that, I just kind of want to take them all as a group. And you know what I find fascinating about each one of these people? About Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. You know what I find amazing about each one of those people? Is yes, they were amazing in faith, but... They were also deeply flawed in their life. Nobody's going to hold any one of these guys up as perfect people. I mean, look at them piece by piece. Gideon. Oh, yeah. Mr. Mighty in faith. You had to be persuaded by making God jump all through kind of hoops in order for you to be assured in faith. And then you really got a little bit weird late in your life as well. Nevertheless, Gideon, a man of faith. Who's the next one on the list? The next one he lists is Barak. Do you remember Barak in the pages of the Old Testament? Barak was the guy that basically, and you know what? He's probably going to punch me in the shoulder when I get in heaven for saying this, but I'll say it. Barak was the guy who was too chicken to go to battle unless the woman Deborah came along inside him. Okay, man of faith. Yeah, great, Mr. Man of faith. You won't go unless the woman comes and fights with you. What about the next one? Barak and... Samson. Do we need to even talk about Samson? What a weird and often strange and disobedient man he was. Yet nevertheless, God used him in a mighty way. And then who does he list after that? Jephthah. Now, for many of you, the name Jephthah isn't going to associate anything. And for that, I'm almost glad because he is one of the strangest men. Jephthah won a great battle, a great victory for the Lord. But you know what he did before he ever went into the battle? He made a vow to God. He said, God, what if you help me win this battle, whatever comes outside of my house, I'm going to sacrifice you. Now, he was thinking, I don't know, that the little lamb or a goat or maybe a great big cow was going to come out of his house and greet him. Maybe that was customary. Maybe that's always happened. Maybe he had a precious little lamb that would always come up and lick his hand when he came home. I don't know. But he made a foolish vow and he won the battle. And you know what? Who greeted him when he came back from the battle? His dear daughter. Now, I don't believe, and I think I can make the case persuasively from the book of Judges. I don't believe that Jephthah offered his daughter as a human sacrifice. I believe that what he did was he put her in the convent, so to speak. That back then they had this thing where a woman or a young girl could be put away in a convent associated with the tabernacle in its service. And that her dedication to the Lord, her sacrifice unto God would pretty much mean she would never marry and she'd live her life forever in this convent. I can make the case from that from Judges, but nevertheless, weird guy. Yet nevertheless, a hero of the faith. 
And then we talk about David and Samuel. You know, think about David, an amazing man of God from the pages of the Old Testament, yet distinctly flawed. This is how it is. Now, friends, doesn't this give each one of us some encouragement? That each of these were men of faith, yet they had notable areas of failure in their life. Nevertheless, Hebrews chapter 11 commends their faith. And it even puts them in this great, you know, museum of the faithful that we find in chapter 11. This shows us something. It shows us that weak faith is better than unbelief. It also shows us this. You don't have to be perfect to be a hero in God's museum of faith. Sometimes we look at these biblical characters and we have a way of thinking that their life and their experience of God is so far detached from ours. It's not. It's not. And I say that recognizing. As I said a few weeks ago, but I feel compelled to repeat it again. I recognize and I think the Bible recognizes that faith just seems to come easier for some people than others. For some people, a life of faith and the spiritual life, they just seem more to take to it. I don't know if it's genetics. I don't know if it's upbringing. But we recognize this, don't we? And nevertheless, it would seem to me that some of the guys that I just read you about, especially a guy like Samson, it would seem to me like the spiritual life, like a life of faith didn't come easy to him. It wasn't just nature. It wasn't like falling off love. It wasn't like he woke up as a child singing praises to God as a little boy. But no, 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 no. God still used him as a great man of faith. Even if you feel that you are not inclined so much to a life of faith, that that the spiritual life just doesn't ooze into you effortlessly. Nevertheless, you can be one of God's great men or women of faith. This is how God works in the lives of his people. Now, going on to verse 33, I'll read to the middle of verse 35. He's going to talk about these great victories won by faith. Check this out. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Friends, that's victory, isn't it? Think about all these glorious achievements by faith. They subdued kingdoms, men like David and Joshua and King Asa and Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and Josiah. All of those men, by faith, they subdued kingdoms. They worked righteousness like the mighty prophets of God, Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah. They all stood for righteousness in times of great depravity. They obtained promises. And did you see that in verse 33? They stopped the mouths of lions. Who do you think he's thinking of right there? Immediately comes to mind, Daniel, right? Daniel goes into the lion's den and suddenly the lions aren't hungry anymore. Isn't that fascinating? Because as soon as they took Daniel out and threw those other guys in, the lions regained their hunger very quickly. Daniel didn't stop the mouths of the lions with a kung fu kick or something like that. He stopped the mouths of the lions by faith. He trusted in God. I suppose you could also say David. David took on a lion one-on-one when he was defending his flock just as a little shepherd boy. But by faith, great victories like stopping the mouths of lions. Verse 34 says that they quenched the violence of fire. Who do you think of with that? I know who I think of. Shadrach, 
Meshach and Abednego, right? There they are, cast by Nebuchadnezzar into the fiery furnace, and they were not harmed. They didn't even smell like smoke when they were delivered out of the fiery furnace. Now, what's remarkable about that is, again, their faith going into this was a faith that said, and I love how it says this in the book of Daniel. It says that before Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were cast into the fiery furnace, that they told Nebuchadnezzar this. Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm paraphrasing, but I think it's an accurate paraphrase. They said, Nebuchadnezzar, we are not going to bow down before your image. And our God is fully able to deliver us from this fiery furnace. But even if he doesn't deliver us, we're not going to bow down before you. Because we know that God is God, whether or not I personally experience his deliverance in a specific situation or not. Ladies and gentlemen, that is faith. And by faith, as he says right there in verse 34, they quenched the violence of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. And then look at how he throws this in in verse 34. Out of weakness, we're made strong. Now, when I read that line, something perks up in my heart, in my life. Because I don't think I'm revealing anything secret about my life to tell you that um, I've never had to deal with quenching the violence of fire in persecution in my life. Nobody's ever threatened to throw me into a fiery furnace. I've never had to deal with um, escaping the edge of a sword in my life. The closest I've ever come to a lion is at the zoo. So, I mean, that's, that's my... But, but, look at what it says there in verse 34. Out of weakness were made strong. I know what it's like to be weak and to desperately need the strength of God. I think you do too. I don't know if you know that you know it, but you know it. You know what it's like to receive and to experience this weakness and to say, I must be made strong by God. And in those moments, I can say that there have been times in my life when I have felt God so fill me with his strength as I have relied on him, as I've looked to his word. Like it says in Ephesians chapter six, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That's not saying be strong in David and in the power of David's might. That's pretty lame. But to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, that tells me that there's this access, there's this connection to the strength and the power of God that's available for me and for every believer. I can live this. I may never face a lion. I may never face the edge of the sword. But I know what it's like to be weak and to need the strength of God. I think you do too. And I love it. That by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer of the Hebrews included this in because what it does is it reminds us that we are connected with these things. It's not so distant from us that even though we may never face the dramatic trials and experience some of these amazing victories and battle and such that they did. Nevertheless, we have our life to live before God and faith is for our life as well. That's what he explains to us. So they became valiant in battle. Women who received their dead raised to life again. Can you imagine how joyful that is? 
A poor mother, such as in the days of Elijah, the widow brings her son to the prophet and says, would you please bring him back to life? And the prophet, through the ministry of prayer and something miraculous from God, raises the child back to life. Can you imagine the rush of just joy and and exultation within that woman when she received her son or her child back from the dead again? You see, right then, in the middle of verse 35... I think he changes gears abruptly because 33, 34 and the first part of 35 are all about these amazing triumphs of faith. Now look at another angle of the life of faith, beginning in the middle of verse 35. You ready for this? And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings. Yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. That first line in the middle of verse 35 stops me short. They were tortured. I got to be honest with you. To me, it seems very distant from my life. I feel my life to be so blessed that sometimes I can hardly believe it. I mean, sometimes I wonder, Lord, do you have any blessing left for me in heaven? Because I feel like I'm so blessed on this earth. I I think of my marriage to Ingalil and what a blessing that is in my life. I think of this wonderful congregation that I'm privileged to serve. I think of the life and the health that God has given me. I think of where I live. I think of opportunities that God has given me in my life to be used of him. And sometimes I feel so blessed and I read something like this and I wonder, Lord, have I ever suffered for you at all? And then I realize that sort of appointment to this kind of affliction, it is all in the hands of God, is it not? That God never tells us to run after such things. But what I want to have is I want to have the heart and the commitment of Jesus Christ that would enable me to rise to the occasion if, God forbid, I should ever find myself in such a situation. And I pray that for you as well. I pray that there's not a single person in this room that would have a fair-weather faith. What kind of faith is that? Oh, yeah, Lord, I'll love you. I'll trust you. Jesus, you're my Lord as long as everything goes easy. But as soon as I got to pay a price for following you, well, then count me out. That's disgraceful. That's dishonorable. That's like a soldier deserting the army. It's like a policeman throwing in the badge. It's like we never want to be of that sort. No, no, we don't seek these trials. We don't seek these sufferings. But God helping us, we would do it in that moment of trial. And we would do it. Notice this. It's so clear here. Starting in the middle of verse 35, I'll read again. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. In other words, they could have been delivered, but they wouldn't accept it. Why? That they might obtain a better resurrection. Have you ever thought about that idea of the better resurrection? What? I thought every resurrection was good. No. No. Matter of fact, let me read to you something that Jesus said in John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Ready? Jesus said this. 
Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of a condemnation. I think that phrase, resurrection of condemnation, should make a cold chill go down our spine. Everyone in this room is going to live forever. Every one of you is immortal. I hope my earnest prayer is that every one of you allows Jesus to buy you out of the slave market, that you surrender your life to him as his bond slave, and you know what it's like to live this life, this, as he said, the resurrection to life not the one to condemnation. Surely you would admit, going back to Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verse 35, that the resurrection of life is the better resurrection, is it not? It doesn't take a genius to figure that one out. But that's not all they had. Look at verse 36. They had trials of mockings. They had chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. Friends, you know, this continues to the present day. I don't need to tell you this, do I? I mean, I think we're familiar with this. I talk about it from time to time. How this is the age of great persecution upon the church. That in the last 100 years, more Christians have been martyred for their faith than in all previous centuries combined. We often in our mind think that the greatest years of persecution in the church were the first 300 years of the church's existence. And it's true, there were terrible persecutions during that time. But if you want to talk about just by the numbers... More Christians have died for their faith in the last 100 years than in all the previous centuries combined. And they are imprisoned and languishing for their faith right here, right now. You know the story, I hope you do, about Saeed Abdini. That man who's in an Iranian prison right now, since 2012, beaten and abused. And I'm very grateful that his case, his, his uh, cause gets a lot of attention through social media and the Internet. And there needs to be more and more. But don't ever forget, he's almost just like a representation of everybody, all the Christians, the nameless ones who suffer in prisons. Now, does anybody think that the reason why Saeed's in prison in Iran and the reason why I have, in many ways, such a blessed life in Santa Barbara is because I'm more right with God than he is. What, are you kidding? Are you joking? No, there is a blessedness. There is a power. There is something from heaven on the life of those whom God calls to suffer for him and those for whom he strengthens in the moment of the suffering that's really surpassing. That's really glorious and something, as I said, very close to heaven. It says there in verse 32, verse 37, I mean, some of them were sawn into, you know, according to tradition, Isaiah was the prophet who was sawn into. That's how he was executed. And then in the midst of all of this, in the midst of this great thing, tortured, uh, uh, trials of mockings, trains and imprisonment, stoned, sawn in two. Look at what he throws in there in verse 37. They were tempted. 
You see, in the midst of all these terrible physical tortures, then the writer brings up being tempted in the very same context. Now, there are some people who think that the biblical text was corrupted here, and what he actually meant to say was something like mutilated or strangled or branded or burnt alive. I don't think so. I think he meant to say tempted. Because there's some people say, well, how can being tempted really being suffering for Jesus Christ? Have you ever been tempted? Of course. Each and every person in this room knows what it's like to struggle with temptation. And friends, if you look over this list that the writer of the Hebrew gives, if you look over this list, tortured, uh, the trials of mockings, chains and imprisonment, stoned, sawn in two, slain with the sword, uh, of whom the world was not worthy, all that, you look over that all list and you say, okay, the only one that I can say is real about my life is tempted then let's say this, then God helping us, we will endure the temptations that face us in our life in a godly and in a righteous way. You are not in an Iranian prison. You are not sitting waiting for the saw to cut you in two, but you are tempted. And just as much as it would be important for you to be faithful to God in the midst of an Iranian prison, is it not important for you and I to be faithful to God in the midst of our temptations? We need to carry that kind of battle mentality to the very temptations that we face. Going on, verse 37, slain with the sword, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, of whom the world was not worthy. Friends, the world is not necessarily friendly to people of faith. But you know what? The world isn't necessarily worthy of those people of faith. There's something about the great men and women of faith that you understand. They, they just live and have a life in a way that almost does not seem worthy of this world. I like what Leon Morris said, the great commentator. He said this. The despised and ill-treated group of servants of God was of greater real worth than the rest of humanity put together. That's God's estimation, maybe not the world's. And they lived in dens and the caves of the earth, all of this bringing to the conclusion in verses 39 and 40. Ready for this? Let's look again at our text. It says, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Did you see that in verse 39? All of those, all of those great men and women of faith, all of them. Think about all them and all their endurance, all their suffering, all the promises they received, all the temptations they endured. Notice it all. Though they obtained the good testimony, they did not receive the promise. What promise is he talking about? I'll tell you, he's talking about the promise of Jesus, the Messiah. They never held that in their hand the way that you and I do. Think of Isaiah. There is Isaiah about ready to be sawn in two. A horrible way to die. And there's Isaiah in the last thoughts of his mind. He's thinking, I've prophesied about the Messiah to come. I've prophesied about his glory. I've prophesied about his sufferings. I know about the Messiah to come. I trust in the Messiah to come. And he believed in the promise, but he never had the promise until Jesus actually came. You know what great benefit you and I have on this side, on part of the new covenant? 
we have the promise and we look back to it. Isn't that amazing? Think of what Isaiah would have done with a copy of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Oh, yes, this is it. I knew it at a distance. I knew it on the horizon. I knew it. I believed it, but I never saw it clearly. And Isaiah would look at you and I deep in the eyes and he would say, how can you not believe? I believe to the end and I saw it only as a shadow off on the horizon. You see it clearly. You got to read the gospel of John. How can you not believe? And it stirs us to faith. That's why he says, They did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. The idea of perfect is complete. And they, even these great worthy ones of the Old Testament, they could not be made perfect until the finished work of Jesus. They looked forward to that work as on a distant horizon. We look back to it with much better knowledge. So friends, this leaves me with two thoughts, and I'll just end with this. Number one, isn't it amazing how we belong to one great big family of faith? Now, I believe that there is a difference between God's work with Israel and God's work with the church. I believe that there's a distinction between the church and Israel. Nevertheless, I do believe that there is a marvelous continuity among God's men and women of faith throughout all generations. And we are all part of this great company of the redeemed. And that's a glorious thing. But secondly, and I don't mean this in a flip way, but I'll just say it directly to the point because I feel the time's running away with me. If they could do it on that distant side way before the cross, if they could do it, you can do it. If they could trust God and live life so glorifying to him with such a shadowing understanding of the great blessings that we have in Jesus Christ, then can we not be stirred to faith? Because we have so much better promises and such a marvelous fulfillment of these things right in front of us. I know it's a challenge, but I'll tell you how I regard it. I regard it as a challenge that stirs me. Yes, Lord. If Isaiah and Abraham and David and Elijah could all have that kind of faith, then, Lord, I want to have it based on even better promises. Let's pray exactly to that end. Father in heaven, I feel, Lord, like it's past the time of words. And now, Lord, I simply leave this to the power and the work of your Holy Spirit to stir me and to stir each and every one of us to real faith. Lord, we are here not just to escape hell, not just to go to heaven. Lord, we do in the core of our being. We want to graduate and we want to graduate into the joy of being your bondservants, of serving you, of being traitors to this world, but faithful bondservants to Jesus Christ. Help us to do it, Lord, and pour out your spirit upon us. We need this. And be with us now as we worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.